Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. This subject fascinates everyone everywhere because it affects everyone everywhere. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Medical malpractice affects patients, families, nurses, doctors, midwives, healthcare institutions, the associations that define medical standards, lawyers, and the general public. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. I'm here today with Sheila McGregor, a lawyer from Weir Bowen Law Firm in Edmonton, Alberta. Sheila's a member of the Law Society of Alberta since 2010, the Birth Injury Lawyers Alliance. She's president of the Alberta Civil Trial Lawyers Association and won the President's Award for that same association in 2015. I'm so happy to have her here today because she's intelligent and articulate and well-spoken and passionate about the work that she does. And you're going to love what she has to talk about today. The topic is why expert testimony is crucial in medical malpractice cases, what that testimony might consist of, who can act as an expert, and what is the great basis of an expert report, and what makes a great expert. I know this topic is of good, great interest to all of the healthcare professionals, but also to a lot of other people who might be listening in today. Welcome, Sheila. I'm really glad to have you here. Thanks, Chris. Let's start off, first of all, about why in particular in medical malpractice we even need expert witnesses. So many, many years ago, the courts in Canada decided they're not experts on everything. They can't just decide these things in a vacuum without knowledge. So they came up with a test to determine when can the court decide on its own and when does the court need an expert to guide them towards a proper decision. So when the court lacks the sufficient knowledge to make a decision, that's when the court needs an expert. So in medical malpractice, there's so many specialized issues that the court doesn't have the knowledge of. So for example, one of the things that you need to prove in a medical malpractice case is that the doctor or nurse or other health care practitioner was negligent. So you have to go to that similarly qualified expert compared to the defendant and look at them and have them comment on what is expected of that doctor or that nurse and did they meet that standard or not. So that's a standard of care question that we encounter in 99% of medical malpractice cases we need an expert on standard of care. On top of that then there's causation issues in medical malpractice cases. So often somebody will when they come to me they're saying well the doctor was negligent isn't that the only issue no usually somebody's seeing a doctor or a nurse because they've got some sort of medical condition that's brought them there so we have to look at what effect did the negligence have on the outcome and that's usually one of the toughest issues we deal with in medical malpractice so we have to go to um, an expert we usually try to get the best qualified experts to comment on what difference did that negligence make on the outcome. So when you're talking about that connecting the negligence to the outcome, can you give a really specific example of a time when 
it was clear that the negligence was related to the adverse outcome and a time when the two aren't related. Okay. One example of where causation is pretty straightforward is the doctor does the procedure on the wrong side of the patient's body. So they're right. supposed to do a surgery on the left side or the left knee, and then they actually do it on the right knee. Generally, there's no real causation issue there. You know, the person suffered an unnecessary surgery because of it and the pain that goes along with that. And everyone will just accept that as fact and move forward. Generally, yeah, yeah, unless there's some sort of underlying medical condition in the knee that was accidentally operated on where they'd need another surgery anyways. But generally, it's quite straightforward. An example of something that is not nearly as straightforward is a case in uh, delayed diagnosis of a condition. So somebody has a condition that can be quite serious and cause either disabling effects or death. And so the person, we are alleging that they died as a result of the delay in the diagnosis and treatment of a condition that is serious. Would that be like a cancer condition? Cancer. uh, We've had cases where there's some sort of spinal lesion, like on a person's spine where it progresses and causes quadriplegia or some sort of problem with your intestine. I just did a trial last year where a person's had an ileus, which is a blockage in their intestine, and it was left for a really long time without treatment, and then the person died. So um, there's all sorts of conditions that it can apply to. But yeah, cancer is a very, very good one, where the person has a condition that can cause them a bad outcome in any event. But we're alleging that the delay in diagnosis is the reason the person died, not just having the condition. So that's when we have to go to the best expert we can find to help us determine, did the delay in diagnosis cause it? Or were they going to die anyways, for example, from cancer? Hmm. And I could imagine there's other things that come into play there too. Would the treatment have been effective? Would the patient have accepted the treatment? Because certainly people choose not to have treatment in certain situations. So you're saying causation is the big challenge. Standard of care? seems relatively straightforward, but proving causation seems to be the bigger challenge. Usually causation is a challenge because most people that come to me have all sorts of medical conditions um, that you don't know what effect that would have on their outcome versus just the delay in diagnosis and treatment of it. So standard of care is still a tricky thing that you need to prove. In some cases, it's trickier than others. Sometimes it's quite straightforward. But the causation issues are the ones that we really need the best experts to comment on. Well, that's uh, good to know and interesting. I think a lot of people don't actually understand that. You know, they feel if things went wrong and there was a bad outcome, that it's pretty straightforward. So it's good to know that experts have to discuss. And your job is to prove both of those issues, standard of care and causation. And both are equally important. If you don't prove causation at trial, you can lose the trial even if you prove that the doctor was negligent. Right. Yeah, I understand. So on that topic of causation, I've worked with a lot of different experts through my business, and it's really clear that some profound differences exist between the medical definition of probability when you're looking at causation and the legal definition of probability. Could you speak a little bit on that topic? Sure. So this is something that I have to educate most experts uh, on that haven't dealt with doing medical legal work before. So doctors are, you know, especially people who do research, they look at 
scientific standards of probability. So they're looking at scientific definitions approved 95% or greater. That is a very different standard than what we use in the courts. The court, uh, the civil definition uh, is just a balance of probabilities for causation. So that's really 51% or better, right? So there's a big difference between the 51% and the 95%. So it's important for our causation experts to understand the substantial difference. So when I go to a, an expert and I say, okay, can you give me some feedback on whether this negligence affected the outcome in any way? If I hear back from my expert, well, there's no literature supporting me to say that, my response is, you're using the wrong standard. Just because there's no published literature saying there's a 95% likelihood that this would have made a difference, that's not the inquiry. You can use all of the information that you have available to you, your your experience. Um, you don't need just articles to support it, although that's very helpful. But just common sense, even in your practice, knowing how these things go, that is acceptable when it comes to a civil standard of proof. That's interesting. So the expert's opinion is truly their opinion based on their experience and their knowledge and their clinical expertise in the field that they've worked in. Right. Oh, I was going to say, even the Supreme Court of Canada has commented on that. A former law professor from the University of Alberta, he's now on the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, Justice Russell Brown, he has published quite a bit on the difference between the civil standard and the scientific standard and how it's a miscarriage of justice to apply the scientific standard and how important it is to recognize the difference when it comes to, in particular, medical malpractice cases. Right. That's interesting. So when you have a case, let's say the decision has been made to to go, you know, if someone has walked into your office and you've heard their story and you perhaps have looked at the medical records, and we've talked about this in the past podcast, sort of the process of the series of events that happen before you get to the point where you make a determination of whether or not to take on or further investigate a lawsuit. How soon do you retain a medical expert and what do you do with them once you've got them? Our practice is to retain experts as soon as we can. So we get the records in. And we take a look at them just to screen for the different issues that may arise based on what the records tell us. And then we will retain uh, usually a causation expert as soon as we can to give us a comment on what the effect of the potential negligence is. Um, also going to uh, standard of care experts. Usually we try not to commence a case without having a standard of care opinion and a causation opinion to let us know we truly have something to work with. We don't want to go too far in these cases without knowing that we've got a solid foundation. You never know what kind of feedback you're going to get. You know, I've been doing this for a while. I have some medical knowledge, but certainly don't know what my experts know about the various areas. And so sometimes things come out of left field and I have no idea that that was what was coming and they help inform what approach we take, you know, who we sue the time frame involved, you never know. For example, in a cancer case, you can go to a causation expert and you think, well, there was a delay in diagnosis of a year. You think that's a long time. Well, with some cancers, it's not very long and it doesn't make a difference. But I've had a number of cases where my expert said, well, did you see the CT scan six years prior? There was something missed on that. And of course, I have no idea, right? So then mm. all of a sudden, you're looking at a different time frame, different uh defendant, that sort of thing. So uh, it's really important to get expert feedback early. I guess we'll talk about this in a couple of different healthcare professions. So 
standard of care and causation, you've mentioned physicians. And are those two experts typically the same person? Or would you go to two different physicians to get those two different opinions? It depends on the case. Uh, I would say more often than not, they're different. So, Do you have an example of that? Like, So in a case where there, it would be similar is if there's a, often orthopedic surgery cases, for some reason, you end up with having just an orthopedic surgeon commenting on standard of care. And, you know, like if there's a missed fracture or something or the surgery is done incorrectly, they comment on what the doctor should have done differently, if anything, and the effect that it had on the patient. So that's one where it's similar. More often than not, though, you have different experts. So again, going back to a cancer case, often it's a general practitioner that uh, if if somebody missed it, it's a general practitioner because there's symptoms for a number of years. So you have to go to the general practitioner expert to comment on the standard of care issues. And then you go to an oncologist that's specialized in the area, the type of cancer it is to comment on causation issues, Got for it. example. Got it. Okay. And if we're looking at other healthcare professionals who might also be named as defendants in the lawsuits, let's say a nurse, do nurses talk on those two subjects as well, standard of care and causation? Generally not. Generally, we go to people who do research in the certain areas. Sometimes they can comment on things. For example, I had a case last year where the issue was a failure to administer IV fluids and the effect that that has on a patient. Well, a nurse is very well qualified to comment on that. Of course. So there are circumstances where nurses do comment on causation issues. Of course, in that case, I also had an internal medicine expert comment on causation issues, what effect dehydration has to a person. For example, in obstetric cases, you have often multiple defendants with different qualification. So, you know, uh, in a labor and delivery case, you have, uh, could be a GP expert, could be an uh, obstetrician expert and a nurse, all just commenting on standard of care of the practitioner who was involved. And then who in that particular instance would provide opinion on causation? So in obstetric cases, there are usually a number of experts that we retain to comment on causation issues. The biggest issue in labor and delivery cases where we're alleging that there was a sign that something was wrong with the baby and the baby should have been delivered earlier to avoid, for example, hypoxia, we have to time when the hypoxia actually occurred. So we go to a neuroradiologist to look at the brain imaging, which helps us determine that. We will go to a pediatric neurologist who will look at certain aspects of the baby's condition to time when the hypoxia occurred. Uh, often we'll go to a neonatologist to comment on some of the things that the baby was dealing with after the uh, after the baby was born. And we'll also talk to either a perinatologist or obstetrician to comment on what the fetal heart strip showed and how that helps us determine what's happening with the baby in utero. And we often go to people like you too, an expert in reading these fetal heart monitoring strips to help us determine, is there something bad happening with the baby during the fetal heart monitoring? Of course. Well, it's so complicated. And I only know what I know because I worked in the field for 35 years at the bedside. So it must be really challenging for you to even... Well, let me just ask you this. How much have you learned about medicine since you started doing this job compared to what you knew before you started? A lot of our junior lawyers look at me and they say, did you take some sort of course? I'm like, no, I knew nothing. 
I knew nothing. (laughs) My experts have educated me and my colleagues. I, I work with Joe Miller, who's been doing this for almost 40 years now, although he probably wouldn't want me to say that. Um, Go ahead. It's already out there. Just say it. (laughs) It's on the website. So, um, but, you know, having the support of your experts and your colleagues to help you understand what the medical records say, you know, you encounter some of the similar issues over and over again, especially in obstetrical cases. You just sort of learn by doing. And while you're learning while doing, you have somebody senior making sure that the client's taken care of and they actually know what's happening. But sure. but yeah, you learn a lot in the first, even, well, I'm still learning a lot. And I the more I learn, the more I know what I don't know. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I certainly know as an expert, you know, and, and working with you in the past on obstetrical cases, it's been a gift for me to teach because it forces you to look very critically at what you know and why you do and how you know what you know because there's so much information in any job that just seems to be absorbed from the surroundings. And do people have to articulate the standards and why they exist and the effect that they have on patients and outcomes has made a better nurse of me. I think the education process between experts and lawyers goes very much both ways and it's, it's been good for me as well. So for the healthcare professionals out there that might be even thinking about getting involved in expert work. Because certainly there's some polarization out there of people who just think you shouldn't speak out ever against a fellow colleague. Others who have a very strong passion to uphold the standard of care and excellence in the healthcare system. And me having great respect for both healthcare and law. And I do. If there are experts who are kind of waffling on the fence and just wondering, I'd like to do that work, but I really don't know how to even get started. What can they expect in the way of the work that they'll do, the communication with you, the roles that they'll play kind of throughout the process of a lawsuit? So I'll take you through sort of from my first contact with an expert to even trial. So Perfect. if you're an expert that's never dealt with uh, medical legal work before, I say I reach out to you and you say, oh, I'd be open to it, but I don't know what to do. I would talk to you on the phone about the case a little bit if you're wondering you know a little bit more about it I often when I reach out will explain a bit about the case so you can assess okay is this something where I actually feel qualified to talk about this we'll talk on the phone a little bit if you want and then I will send the medical records to you for your review usually I in my instruction letter that includes the records I will outline the questions that I have for you. And then once you've had a chance to review the records, then we have a chat to see what's your feedback on this. And especially if you're new to it, you may not know, for example, the scientific standard that we were talking versus the civil standard that we're talking about before. So helping you understand how this process goes, explaining some of that, getting an expert opinion is very much a back and forth thing. Because there may be things that I don't realize are relevant that you bring me up to speed on. And there may be things that you don't realize are important that are important to me for a variety of reasons based on my ex- my trial experience or whatever. So we'll have a conversation, you do a report, and usually we have you reevaluate the case once questionings happen. So all the parties get questioned under oath midway through the action. Sometimes there's revelations in that process that may affect your opinion. So we get that out to you and you um, then do a final report and then that gets served on the other side. And then 
so I work for plaintiffs. So we serve our reports first, then the defense will send your report to their expert, their expert comments on your opinion, does their own report, we get that, then we send you their report to comment on. And then we get a surrebuttal report from you commenting on the other side's expert opinion. So those are the reports, really. If it proceeds to trial, then we would be entering your reports as evidence. Everybody in the courtroom will have your report and your CV so they can see that you're qualified to give the opinion that you you have. And then I would brief you before the trial. So explaining what, you know, you should know what the issues are by then if I've done my job properly. Um, But just talking a bit about what I think the cross-examination will be from the other side and uh, making sure that we cover everything we need to cover and getting really on the same page about exactly what your testimony is going to look like. By the end of the briefing with the lawyer, you should have a very good idea of what your testimony is going to look like, both being led by the lawyer that's hired you and the cross-examination questions that the other side will have. And then when you intend in court, you take the oath and it does vary between provinces. But in Alberta, we use your report to guide you through your testimony. You explain to the court what your opinion is and why you have that opinion. And then the defense asks their questions and then uh, you're done, basically. Well, sounds easy. Sounds easy. It's very, I mean, this this sort of thing lasts a number of years. It's not as intense as it sounds because it's bite-sized pieces over many, many years. And how many years? So I tell my clients normally from beginning to end in Alberta, at least between five and seven years. Mm. Um, A lot of that is because the courts are pretty backed up in Alberta. It's not the same way, say, in BC. I know it's a lot quicker in BC, but in Alberta, it does take a long time. So, you know, in year one, you'll hear from me. And then maybe in year three, once the questioning start happen, and I can send you the transcripts. And then, you know, year six is the trial. So Mm -hmm. it's not as intense as it sounds. You have maybe three points of involvement in the lawsuit. So, of course, the expert that signs on in the beginning, you would expect and or hope that they stick with you through the end. Definitely. There's no stepping down once you've stepped up. Yeah, that's a very important thing. And the reason why it's so important is because my clients rely on my expert's opinion, and I rely on it, right? So we're proceeding with the lawsuit on the basis that you are going to stand by your opinion. You're going to be there to defend it when we need you to. If you're not willing to see it all the way through, then I'd rather not have you as my expert. Mm. Yeah. I could imagine. Well, I think that's really important for people interested in the role of an expert to know that it could take this long. So it might be a total of 50, 60, 70 hours spread out over a six-year period. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that would be fair. I can't say how much time my experts spend on things. Some spend a lot more time than others. Some are much more detail-oriented than others. But yeah, I would say that's probably about accurate. Okay, okay. Well, you know, I think that's a really good place to stop for today. When we come back, let's talk more about the expert report and the expert at trial And from your opinion, what makes a really great expert? Because I think that is a really interesting topic for a lot of people. So let's call it done for today. If someone out there that's interested in expert witness work, 
Don't hesitate to get in touch through my website at Connect Medical Legal Experts. And easy email is info at connectmlx. And send an email or send a copy of your CV or resume, and we'll have a look to help you get started. But thanks very much, Sheila, for this today. And we'll be back on another great topic. Mm -hmm.